Well, Happy New Year. It's good to see you all this morning. And uh, I think that uh, they're taking care of everything in the back there. Uh, the EMS is here. So um, just, you know, stay in prayer. Um, we're all involved in the situation there. Um, I don't know if you if it's on the screen yet or if you saw in your bulletin, um, but ha, there it is. Kind of a funny sermon title this morning, right? Um, not what you were expecting when you came in, <laughs> into church this morning. Um, but I think you'll see why, uh, why we have that up there. And the best part about it is it's part one, and there's part two coming. <laughs> so uh, just delightful there. Um, but there was this illustration that I used to hear. Uh, I grew up in a Christian home, church all the time, went to a Christian college, all that. There was this illustration that I used to hear pretty regularly from people Uh, pastors, whoever, that was intended to promote holiness in us youngsters. And uh, I'm sure it was told a number of different ways, but this is kind of how I remember it. Maybe you've heard this too. Uh, Maybe you've given this illustration. I hope not. But um, there was this king who lived in a mountain kingdom, and he wanted to hire a driver to, you know, take him around to the different portions of his kingdom. And in this mountain kingdom, there were, uh, there were roads that were right along the side of the cliff, and there was a steep drop-off, you know, down into nothing, uh, on no guardrails or anything next to the roads. And so he's going to hire this new driver, and he has three main applicants for the job. And so he wanted these applicants to go out on the roads and to drive, and then he would pick one uh, of the three. And so... The first two guys get in their cars and they go as fast as they can and as close to the edge of the, you know, the road and the cliff as they can. And, you know, their goal is to show the king how good drivers they are, that they can get so close to the edge and not go over and drive as fast as they can. Well, it comes to the third driver and his tactic is quite different. He stays as close as he can to the center of the mountain and he doesn't go very fast, and he, he drives. Well, the king ends up hiring the last driver in this story, and his reasoning, as it was told, was, I don't want to see how close to the edge I can get. I want to be sure that I am safe, and so I'm going to hire this driver. And, of course, the application of that to us youngsters was, if you know sin is here then you should stay as far away as possible to avoid falling into sin. And when I heard that, you know, it sort of made sense to my brain. Um, And there were times that I can remember in high school and college thinking, if that's the way it works, then the way to be holy is to be as strict as I possibly can. Then that will lead to holiness in my life. I remember reasoning and processing through it that way. Well, the problem with that illustration is, and that whole line of reasoning that I was thinking at that time, was that it completely misses the point of what true holiness is and how sin operates. Sin is not a cliff that you might fall off of if you get too close to. Sin is not something that is out there. And if you can just put as much distance as possible between you and sin, then you'll be okay. That's not the way sin works. In reality, sin is not out there. It's in here. It's in our hearts. 
It resides right square in the middle of your thoughts and your emotions and your desires. And the reality is, is that holiness is a straightening out what is bent and twisted inside of you. And that's the process of sanctification. But it's so vital that you and I understand what holiness is and what sin is biblically, or else you're going to end up going down the line of reasoning that I did when I was younger and thinking, well, if I can just be as quote unquote strict as possible, then I'll be as holy as I possibly can be. It's really important that we get that. And thankfully, we have some teaching in Mark chapter 7 over the next couple weeks that will help us out in this area. So, thus far in the book of Mark, we've seen Jesus deal with religious leaders and the Pharisees in particular um, several times. And this week and next week, we're going to look at Mark 7 verses 1 to 23. This week, we'll take the first portion of it. Next week, we'll take the second half of it. We're going to look at this passage, and this passage is really an important moment in the book of Mark for a number of reasons. But these couple of weeks, we're going to see a significant gap between the understanding that Jesus has of sin, of holiness, of God's Word, and the understanding that the Pharisees have of all three of those things, sin and holiness, purity, and God's Word. And it's a drastic contrast between the two. And I think as we go through this, you're going to see, as I've seen even this week as I've studied it, how important it is that we rightly grasp what holiness is, what purity is, and what sin is. And we understand that the way that you think about those things will impact how you understand God's Word and how you relate ultimately to Jesus Christ. And if you get this wrong then I think it leads you toward rejecting the person and work of Jesus Christ because you build your own logical reasoning not based on the Scriptures. And that's what the Pharisees ultimately did. So this week we're going to study verses 1 to 13. Next week we'll see the rest of it. And this this week the, the section we're going to look at is focused on this verbal conflict between the Pharisees and between Jesus. And next week, Jesus is going to teach his disciples privately. We've already seen him do that in the Gospel of Mark. But he's going to give them some instructions specifically on what sin is and where the problem really lies. So the answer to this question, we'll kind of get to more full-blown next week. But this week is important for us to understand next week. So this week, we're going to see... Three miscalculations concerning holiness that lead to rejection of Jesus. All right, so three miscalculations concerning holiness that ultimately lead and are wrapped up in rejection of the person and work of Jesus Christ. First one of these miscalculations is multiplying commands, and this is found in verses 1 to 5. So, It's obviously been several weeks over the holidays since we've been in the Gospel of Mark, so just want to remind you where we're at in this Gospel as we study through it together. Jesus is still ministering generally around the Sea of Galilee, sort of in the northeast of the nation of Israel there. And in this section, we call this series Kingdom Advancement because his ministry seems to be expanding out a little bit more. He's doing the same sort of things that he's been doing, but... That he's doing in the first few chapters, but now it seems to be going a little broader and a little bit broader. And as you'll see, even in this 
this section this week and next, and then as we go beyond this in chapter 7, now he's going to start dealing more and more with Gentiles as his ministry expands, even beyond the borders of Israel, which is really important. So here in chapter 7, you have a delegation of religious leaders who know about Jesus, and they come to see him all the way from Jerusalem. Look at verse 1. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem. Now, we've seen leaders from Jerusalem before. This is nothing new. All the way back in chapter 3, we saw this. But this time, it appears to be a bigger group, and it has scribes and Pharisees in it. And as they come, and I don't know if they're just watching Jesus or if they show up here just to ask this question, but it doesn't seem like they're looking to understand his teaching and become his followers. They always have something to confront him over, and that's the case here again. Look at verse 2. So they come from Jerusalem. They saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. So during the course of watching Jesus, however long this was, they notice that the disciples are eating without washing their hands. Now, I have four small children, and those of you who are parents, when you read this, at first glance, this sounds like something that you would be concerned about with your children. They're not washing their hands before they eat. We're all going to get sick. That's the way this works, right? But it's much more significant, as you can imagine, than that here. It's not just a hygiene concern that the Pharisees have over the disciples, and they're eating without washing hands. Look at verse 2 again, and notice there it says that their hands were defiled. You could translate that unclean as well as defiled. Now, you may not remember this, but... We've talked before in the Gospel of Mark about this idea of being clean and unclean. This was quite an important dynamic for the Jewish people, to be clean or to be unclean. And this is rooted in the Old Testament. God's people, the nation of Israel, were to be set apart. They were to be holy. They were to be set apart from those who lived around them. They were to be distinct. And much of the Old Testament law was intended to keep Israel distinct from the people around them and the other nations. And that distinction, that purity, that holiness was necessary for Israel to come into the presence of a holy God to worship him. And so, as you read your Old Testament, which Hopefully you will do over this year as you're reading through the Bible in a year with us, read and reach. As you do that, you will come very quickly in the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You will come very quickly to all of these laws, and these laws were intended to help the people to remain clean or ritually clean, ritually pure, so that they could enter into the presence of God, so that they could worship Him. And so the Old Testament law has ways that they stay clean. But if you become unclean in the Old Testament, there are laws and instructions on how to become ritually clean again. So there's this whole dynamic of clean and unclean, pure and impure there. And so what you have here when the Pharisees in verse 2 say that their hands had become defiled, the Pharisees are accusing Jesus's disciples of becoming ritually unclean or ritually impure, so they would not have been able to worship. God properly. They were 
going through all of these events or activities. You could see it even the last chapter where they're eating with all of these people, probably some Gentiles. They became impure according to the Pharisees. And they were failing to take the proper steps to become pure again before they ate. That's what the Pharisees' concern was here. And so Mark explains this to Gentile readers, which most of us are Gentiles. So look at verses 3 and 4. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. So notice he he mentions there the issue of washing hands specifically, but look at the rest of verse 4. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. All right, so they wash their hands specifically, but Mark says, look, this is one example of the type of things that the Pharisees want you to do. They want to wash all of these other things. And he says that these requirements are based on something. Look back at verses 3 and 4. Verse 3, they're holding to the tradition of the elders. Look at verse 4. And many other traditions they observe. Now, it's important that you understand exactly what he's talking about here he mentions the tradition of the elders, because this is mentioned many, many times in this text, and it's important for us to grasp this. So if you look at the Old Testament and you search for laws related to washing of hands before you eat, there really are only maybe a couple of examples of that. One of the major ones, the primary one, is the the priests in Exodus chapter 30 were required to wash their hands before, before they would eat, but that was it. Now, that was hardly a biblical requirement for all people, okay? This wasn't something that every Jewish person had to do. But what would happen in the nation of Israel is you would have these commands, and then the teachers of the law would start to add other commands on top of those to try to help the people to obey the initial command. Or maybe they would say something like this. Well, this was for the priests, but if it's good enough for the priests, then it should be good enough for everyone else. Everyone else should do this so that we ensure that we remain clean and we don't become impure. And so they would take this principle or this command that was here and they would try to apply it out to every possible circumstance and they would try to apply it to all people. And over the centuries and over the years, this would develop into a tradition of the elders. It was their interpretation of the law, but it became very, very important to them. And it became so important to the Pharisees that they acted like these extra things were required by the Old Testament law. And that's their problem with the disciples here. They're treating washing of hands as if it is a biblical command, and they think the disciples are not following the Torah because they're not following the tradition of the elders. Look at verse 5. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? They believe failure to follow the I'm going to use the word extra biblical tradition means the disciples are unclean and can't worship God properly. Now, you see what's happened here, right? You see how this is a misunderstanding of what holiness is. 
They are multiplying commands. I mean, that's the first miscalculation concerning holiness. They're multiplying commands to the point where they're holding extra biblical requirements as equal to the Bible. They're holding them to the same level as God's word. And they're trying to keep people pure. They're trying to keep people clean. And they're trying to follow the Old Testament and maintain distinctions that were so significant in the life of the nation of Israel. But what they've done here is they've created rules and regulations beyond what Scripture requires, and in doing so, they've misunderstood what holiness is. Now, this is a subtle temptation for us, I think. It's really easy to think through a biblical principle and think this is how other people should apply this and obey this, and if they don't do it the same way I do it, they're not following Scripture. Essentially, what happens here is you go beyond what Scripture has, has says and create extra commands for people to follow. And the Pharisees said their goal was to create a fence around the law. It's sort of like that illustration I gave at the beginning. If you create this fence around the law, then people won't transgress the law because they never even get close to transgressing the law. And the problem is, is that you act as if your extra rules are on the same level as the Bible's commands. And they, I'm sure, had good motives when they're doing this. And people often do have good motives when they do things like this. They only want to help. But what ends up happening is instead of helping, helping, it puts our logical reasoning, our understanding of holiness on the same level as Scripture. And that doesn't lift up your reasoning. It actually brings the Bible down and makes it on the same level as man-made instructions and man-made authority. And what happens when you do that is it reduces the clarity of Scripture and the urgency of obeying the Bible. Because now the Bible has been muddied by all these extra rules and regulations that are required. Notice how Jesus responds to this. And this brings us to our second miscalculation in verses 6 and 7. Look there with me. And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Now Jesus goes on the attack here, right? They ask him this question, and he comes back in a pretty intense way. And he tells the Pharisees they were doing the exact same thing that the leaders of Israel were doing in the Old Testament when Isaiah was a prophet. This is quoted from Isaiah 29, verses 13 and 14. We won't look at it this morning, but you can go back and read the context. But what's happening there in Isaiah is God is promising exile to Israel. And he's promising exile to them for the same exact thing that the Pharisees are doing here. It's the same sort of sinfulness. The Pharisees have just brought it back around. And Jesus having this confrontation with the Pharisees here foreshadows other confrontations that we'll see later as we get into the book of Mark and ultimately lead to Christ's death and to the religious leaders' downfall as they're taken out of leadership in Israel. But look at verse 6 again. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. 
The leaders of Israel said all the right things, didn't they? They honored the Lord with their lips. They kept making sacrifices. They kept the festivals that were required in the Old Testament by God. But their hearts were in a different place. They were given over to idols, worshiping false gods and sinfulness. You can read in the book of Isaiah, but one of the things the leaders did was they would honor God with their lips and they would do these sacrifices and festivals and then they would oppress widows and they would spread injustice throughout the land. Jesus calls that here in verse 6, hypocrisy. They're hypocrites. What's a hypocrite? A hypocrite is someone who has a discrepancy between inside and outside, the way they act and their true inner being, the true state of who they are. Now, we all feel a separation between who we are inside and what we do. We want to do certain things. We want to be certain people, but we don't always live up to that. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. The Pharisees were cultivating and maintaining hypocrisy and this discrepancy between inside and outside. They thought this was good and okay to do this. Now, sometimes I think as we read this, we miss the point of this exhortation to the religious leaders in the Old Testament. We think God was telling them, look, just stop doing these sacrifices. Why are you even doing these sacrifices anymore? But that's not what he was telling them. He wasn't telling them to not honor him with their lips. He wasn't telling them to stop saying the things that they were saying. He was tired of the observance, the sacrifices, the festivals, because they were doing them while living unholy lives. They were maintaining the temple rituals while rejecting God throughout the week. That was the issue here. He wasn't telling them to stop doing those things. He was telling them to get their hearts in the right place. And sometimes we can read this and we can think, well, requiring people to come to church, that's just a dead ritual that we do. Legalistic. But... That misses the point of what's going on here. If there's a discrepancy between inside and outside, God doesn't tell them to forego obeying the Old Testament law and throw the sacrifices and feasts out. It's not telling you not to come to church if there's a discrepancy between what you feel and your activity. He tells them that he hates that they do those things and their hearts are given to other lovers. That's the issue here. I mean, you don't tell a husband who is thinking about having an affair to stop going home and eating dinner with his wife so he's not a hypocrite. Well, that's not the answer at all. The answer is reject the other lover and do things that will help your heart to become aligned with your wife and to cultivate the relationship with her in the right way. You're never going to do that if you stop coming to church, stop reading your Bible because you don't want to be a hypocrite. That's not the answer at all. And that's not what he's saying here. The answer is to bring your heart into alignment with the practices that they were, they were already doing. And so when you talk about maintaining appearances here, which is what I, I think they were doing, both the Pharisees and the the Jews in the Old Testament, I think one of the lessons that you and I can learn from this is it's a great danger for us to maintain appearances as if everything is okay. There's a danger in cultivating a fissure between what is outside, your actions, and your inner disposition. 
I know you want to avoid, and I want to avoid being a hypocrite. But don't throw away Bible reading and church attendance and small groups. And I think one of the best ways to avoid this maintaining of appearances and being a hypocrite is to be open and honest with one another about where your desires are and where your heart is. Try to be real and genuine so that we can exhort one another day after day and help one another to be genuine and to truly love the Lord and to pursue Him. Speak the truth of God's Word to one another. That's what we, that's what we need. So, we've seen here, we must not go beyond what God has written. It's a miscalculation concerning holiness, multiplying commands. And doing that can lead to hypocrisy where we maintain outward appearances, but our hearts are drawn away from the Lord, just like the Pharisees were, the Jews in the Old Testament were. And that leads to our third and final miscalculation here, missing the intent of God's word. I think this is kind of the result of what happens here, missing the intent. Jesus gets to the heart of the issue here. Look at verses 8 and 9. When you multiply commands on top of God's word, when you maintain appearances, cultivate hypocrisy, you end up missing the intent of God's word and you end up rejecting God's word altogether. Verse 8, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. I mean, that's a pretty in-your-face statement. You have put aside God's word so that you can hold to these man-made traditions. So you can do what you want and maintain the appearance of righteousness. Verse 9, and he said to them, you have a fine way. It's sarcasm. Jesus uses it. I love it. He said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. You're doing this. They may not even realize it, but you're doing these things so that you can establish the traditions that you have. The bottom line here is that you end up rejecting God's word when you multiply commands, maintain appearances. You end up missing the intent of God's word and you end up rejecting it. That sounds pretty serious, right? I mean, rejecting God's word is never where we want to be. They're putting their own extra biblical traditions and standards above God's word. And so what that means is that they end up rejecting God's word. But here's the scary part. I don't think they were maybe necessarily intending to do this. I think they were passionate about purity, about cleanness, about right worship. They knew their Old Testaments very, 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 very well. But what they had done is they had tinkered with the intent of God's word and added rules on top of it to the point where they were functionally denying God's word. And Jesus, thankfully, gives us a very clear example of how they were doing this. Look at verse 10. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. Okay, so you've got kind of two sides of this command here. Obviously, honor your father and your mother. It's mentioned a couple times. It's given a couple times in the Old Testament. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Okay, so... This is a big one, right? I mean, this is talking about one of the most fundamental relationships that you and I have. It's with the people who gave us life, and we are supposed to honor them. He also gives the flip side of that given in the Old Testament. Whoever reviles father or mother, verse 10, must surely die. 
But rather than obeying those commands that are given in the Old Testament very clearly, what the Pharisees do is they cling to these extra-biblical traditions. And they want something. These traditions are empowered by their desires, and they lead the Pharisees to reject God's word. Look at verses 11 and 12. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained for me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. Now, there's all sorts of discussion about what this is, but the basic idea, as best I can tell, of Corban is it's a vow that you're going to set something aside for God. So you're going you're gonna to vow that something is given to God. So in the case of the biblical command to honor your father and mother, here's how they would circumnavigate that command. The command requires them to take care of their aging parents financially. So someone may have property that they own, a younger man, his parents are aging, they need help financially. He has this property, but he doesn't want to waste the money from the property on taking care of his parents. So what he does is he says, well, this is, I'm giving this to God. This is vowed to God. So my parents can't use it to help them financially, but it's given to God. And so he would basically maybe put that in his will so that when he died, it would go to, you know, the church or the synagogue or whatever, but he would still be able to functionally use that property, get interest off of renting that property And he would still be able to get money from that property, and he wouldn't have to help his parents out there. And so this this sounds really spiritual, doesn't it, in some ways? I mean, if you just take it at face value, he's devoting all of this property. He's vowing to give it to God. It sounds really, really spiritual. I'm devoting this for God's glory, these resources to God for his glory. And sometimes circumnavigating God's word and holding to extra biblical things does sound spiritual. It maybe does sound holy. But Jesus says here that what the Pharisees are doing is manipulating God's word in order to feed their own desires and to get what they want, to feed their own motivations. They equate holiness with something different than what Jesus does. So look how Jesus summarizes what they're doing in verse 13. Thus, making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. Now, what's interesting here is Jesus actually upholds the law, doesn't he? He says, you need to keep these commands. You need to honor your father and mother. These are significant, important things that you have to obey. But the Pharisees have emphasized a good principle remaining pure, remaining clean, being distinct and separate, they have emphasized that to the point where they, are go- they have gone beyond God's word. And in fact, by emphasizing it, they have ended up rejecting a very clear command in God's word. In some ways, it's almost like they're, they're so hyper-spiritual. They think they're spiritual, that they end up missing the intent of God's word and rejecting what God's word says. Verse 13, again at the end, he says, many such things you do. This sort of handling of God's word, when you treat God's word like this and you don't get the intent of God's word, you don't obey these commands, it doesn't stay in one area. It ends up multiplying because this is how you're going to handle the rest of God's word. This is how you're going to treat 
the authority of the Bible. When you downplay it like this, you're going to end up not obeying it in a whole host of areas. Now, we'll see the flip side of this next week. When Jesus is away with his disciples and he gives positive instruction regarding the true nature of sin and where it really resides. It's not in washing your hands. It's not in certain foods you eat. But true sin is found in your heart. It's always with you. And the remedy for that, obviously, is it's much more significant than washing your hands. But remember, at the beginning of this, I told you that these three miscalculations concerning holiness, holiness lead to a rejection of Jesus. And that's what happens here. Ultimately, the Pharisees didn't understand the Old Testament scriptures. And they didn't understand the true intent of those scriptures and that they were fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. They didn't see that connection. They didn't grasp the intent of the law because they didn't recognize the one who was right in front of them as the Son of God. They missed it. And so really, the bottom line for the Pharisees is that they rejected the authority of Jesus as the Son of God. That's what happens here. They clung to their traditions. They're trying to keep the Word of God, but they clung to those, valued them over the authority of Scripture, and so they missed seeing who Jesus really was and how he was the fulfillment of the Old Testament. So they didn't believe him or his ministry at all. And so we've talked about over and over again how Jesus' ministry of advancing the kingdom brought wholeness physically, spiritually to people through his grace. And the Pharisees were essentially denying people that opportunity through their rejection of Jesus. They didn't recognize that the true issue is defilement in one's heart and not the purity laws or these traditions that they held to. And if you think back to your Old Testament, this is true there too. God told Israel over and over again, what they needed was a new heart. He said, you, look, you're not going to be able to obey because you don't have a new heart. And what you need is a new heart. And that's why Jesus came. He came to give a new heart through his work. He came not just to cleanse our hands, but to cleanse our hearts and to give us new life. Our deepest need is far greater than ritual cleansing. Our deepest need is to be free from our sinful nature that lives in us and put us back into fellowship with a holy God. That's what the Pharisees rejected, and that's what you and I have to be careful not to miss. Because when we miscalculate holiness, when we add things on top of Scripture, when we try to maintain the appearance, when we miss the intent of God's Word, when we do those things, it's not a small error. What ends up happening is we end up denying our true need. We end up misunderstanding holiness. And ultimately, we end up thinking, well, we don't really need Jesus to the same level. Because my problem isn't really residing within my own heart. My problem is out there. And so if I can just stay away from it, then I'll be good. No. We're all sin sick deep down. We're born that way. And the only thing that can cleanse us is the work of Jesus Christ. So what's the lesson for our church body in this? The lesson is keep Jesus at the center. Keep him as the, the crux of everything we do. Keep his person work as the heartbeat 
of our ministry and of our lives. Let's not move away from that. Let's not get caught up in other things and other issues. Let's keep the focus laser-like on Jesus and the salvation that he brings. That's the purpose. That's the goal. Let's not miss the clear teaching of the New Testament that we're talking about in the Gospel of Mark. He is the Son of God who brings good news of his kingdom. Things are going to be set right. And through faith and trust in him, we can be forgiven of our sins and walk in new life and receive a new heart. And ultimately, when we die, spend eternity with him. That's the message of the gospel. That's what he came to bring. Not just clean hands, but clean hearts and free hearts. So let's believe that. Let's encourage one another with that. And let's keep our focus laser-like on that. That news needs to be central to our lives and ministry. And I hope it will. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for the work of Jesus Christ. Our needs are deep. Sin is rooted deeply in us from the moment we're born. Our problem is not outward appearances. It's not unclean hands. It's not the way we dress. Our problem is rooted deep in our hearts and what we want, what we desire, what we love, what affects us. And so we need the good news of the gospel. We need the grace that you provide through Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would help us to recognize that even now as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Thank you for your word. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray.